Hello there. Welcome to the Magid AlphaTame podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking all about things startup related, from the state of entrepreneurship in MENA to the corporate and government support needed to spur innovation across the region. Our guests will also be providing valuable tips and advice for those navigating the startup scene. Welcome to the latest episode of the Majid al Futain podcast. I'm your host for today, Yasmin Al-Haini. Joining me are Joe Abiyat, Acting Chief Corporate Development Officer at Majid al Futain Holding, Ahmad Galal Ismail, CEO of Majid al Futain Properties, and Iyad Al-Kassar, CEO of Rocket Internet Middle East. We'll be discussing all things startup related, from the state of entrepreneurship in MENA to corporate and government support needed to spur innovation across the region. Our guests will also be providing valuable tips and advice for those navigating the startup scene. Thank you very much for joining me today for what's really an interesting topic in the region. We've seen the recent acquisition of Karim by Uber, as well as Suit by Amazon, which are two clear success stories of regional startups. Against this backdrop, I'd like to open the discussion with you, Joe, and get your views on the importance of startups to the development of the MENA region and what impact they could potentially have on regional economies. I think the startup ecosystem in the region has been mainly focused around the services industry. So there has been a lot of startups in the e-commerce space and around it in terms of enablement and, uh, let's say, providing services. And there has been lately a lot of growth, obviously, in the fintech, healthcare, and education space. But I think there is a lot more that could be done around uh, that, uh, what I call like heavy startup work, where there is more R&D and innovation work that uh, could happen. And this is not, is not something that has happened probably in the region yet. I think the focus has always been on taking more of a services model because these are easier to implement, easier to scale. But if we really want to build a sustainable uh, startup ecosystem, we really need to think of how to work around the R&D space and to create a differentiated proposition in the region. I think definitely there is a lot of progress and we've seen a lot of recent news. But there is also an aspect of this that's not enough in the sense, again, what I'm going to say might not be... Uh, that appealing to all our listeners. But yes, there is a lot of excitement around the acquisition of Karim or uh, the acquisition of Sue. But if you think about it, uh, we shouldn't really be thinking of creating businesses that get to a mid-size and then we need to exit and sell them to an external or a global player. We should think of how can we create a differentiated proposition in the region that can go global. And we should be hearing stories about these startups going global and acquiring other uh, competitors, not the other way around. And I think this is what we need to aspire to rather than just think of a short-term exit when we think about these startups. That's a very interesting perspective. And actually, a bit later, we're going to be touching on what is what is the desired endgame for mm. a startup and for an entrepreneur, because different people approach it from a different perspective. So we will definitely touch upon this point. Um, but first, I wanted to turn to you, Ayad, as someone who has a lot of experience working in diverse industries. What would you say are the most promising industries today for high growth potential? I think um, the Middle East, especially the GCC region, has a huge advantage in uh, all kind of customer products and services um, that you offer. And the reason for that is because, and, and we believe that um, this region and emerging countries have an advantage compared to, um, to let's say, um, saturated markets like the US, Germany, and so on. If I go to Germany, you have everywhere a full retail infrastructure. You have everywhere a full service infrastructure offline. So online businesses are competing with offline businesses much more than in this part of the, re- of the world. World, where um, online businesses can grow much faster, much more aggressive, because there is much less offline kind of competition. And, and that's something we are seeing across 
across the board if you so we have seen a lot as joe said uh, a lot of uh, service in uh, sectors in the past um, we believe financial um, and fintech products um, are will be the next big move we see this in china we see uh, also in southeast asia and india and we believe this will happen also to the middle east um, very soon especially because you often have uh, unbanked societies so um, they have basically much less access to banking and they also use banking much less than in other parts of the um, uh, of the world like the us and, and europe so we think financial services uh, is a very big one just so to go very quickly back to the enablers of uh, of the uh, startup scenes, um, money is the most important thing. It's all about the money, right? Um, in the past, um, uh, the big investors were building these skyscrapers, putting all the money into hotels and so on, because it has like some some kind of traditional uh, value. Um, and what we see now in Karim and Souk are very very tiny. Um, um, uh, portions of what it could be. Uh, we will see that software and internet will eat the entire economy. So um, it will be a, maybe a hundred billion, a two hundred, a three hundred billion dollar industry. And for that, you have to invest in the first place uh, a lot. And to be competitive, as Joe said, you can't be on an international um, uh, uh, sphere competitive if you don't have the funding to build huge companies. Um, you see, Kareem. Kareem was the first company that really raised a lot of money. Um, even if you look at Souk. They raised much less than uh, similar uh, companies in Southeast Asia, where they are raising billions. We have a company called Lazada. We raised um, close to a billion dollar before we exited to Alibaba. So um, what you need is basically money, money, money to be able to build these uh, huge companies. Otherwise, um, the big players like Amazon and so on will finally come and take over uh, the entire thing. I think that's a very important uh, thing to keep in mind uh, for the future. Very true, and I think that there are many startups that have actually faced funding as a key challenge in growing their business. So it would be great to get your views also on first funding as a challenge for growing a business, but also from your experience, what are the general hurdles that are faced by entrepreneurs in the region when looking to grow and scale their businesses? I think in the past, the biggest problem was they weren't role models. So you were going to a big company. Um, and telling them as an entrepreneur, we need, um, let's say, $10 million. They were looking at you and saying, what, like for an app, you want 10 million? Like I do it uh, with 20,000, you know? Um, you want for websites this amount of money? I give you an example. When we founded Namshi in the very beginning, we went to a very big name asking for an investment and they were looking at us and saying, who will buy his clothes online? You know, M maybe that's a channel and we will have... Um, you, we can give you a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Um, now online fashion is uh, the fastest growing segment um, in e-retail. Um, only in Saudi Arabia, um, over a billion dollars is sold uh, a year, and this is continuing to double uh, year on year. So um, I think this changed now because there are some role models. There is Namshi that we exited to Amar Group. There is um, Kareem and Souk and so on. So investors now see you can actually make money with it. Um, I think that's important. I think another point, what I tell as entrepreneurs we work with, fundraising is the number one kind of skill. Yeah, um, even if you're very smart and so on, building operations, but you need to be able to, to fundraise because money is the biggest weapon. If you don't have, if you're two times smarter than your competitor, but he has five times more money, you will lose because he can be cheaper than you, because he can hire 
people by paying them more even if he's less efficient. So my advice to entrepreneurs is you have to go out and fundraise like crazy. This has to be 50%, 60% of your time. You have to talk to, I always meet entrepreneurs, they tell me I talked to five investors, they all said no and you know I'm so sad and so on. Yeah, it's not enough. You have to talk to 100 investors. You have to talk to 200 investors and they will all tell you no and at the end one will tell you yes. I wanted to add a point on this. I don't think the right way of looking at it is which industries are going to be growing through startups because what digital transformations and startups have done, they've really blurred the boundaries between industries. And the new way of looking at things is more on clusters and platforms. So if you ask me where's the future in startups is around building platforms and ecosystems. And this is... Uh, w- what's really important for the region and even globally. And this is something that has been proven also in, uh, in, co- in countries in, in Asia, right? So you have to think about it. How can I build a, an end-to-end proposition, be it on lifestyle, on wellness, on uh, on b- business-to-business, on R&D, but whatever you're building, you have to think of platforms, you have to think of partnerships and building an ecosystem around it. I think that's where the future could be. But I want to also cover three things on the challenges front. Uh, one has to do with the funding, which he had mentioned. So definitely there is a need for more funding at the early stage. But what I've seen also, there is a big challenge in the region for funding businesses that are more of uh, growth businesses or already established businesses. When they get to a mid-sized opportunity, it's very difficult to find a regional investor who understands how these digital businesses work. Digital businesses in general, they create value through customer relationships, right? Not through the typical bottom line cash flow. And when they get to this mid-sized level where the valuations are becoming, uh, let's say, expensive, it's very difficult for a regional investor to understand how to approach this. And this is why you haven't seen any businesses of that scale being able to fund in the region uh, at, uh, at that level. And this is why Sue was sold to Amazon. So I think the one of the challenges is patient capital in the region, which is what the private sector could actually bring to the table. This is one. Second aspect is human capital. I think we have a need to uh, to really build on the human capital capabilities that we have in the region. And uh, the third point I want to mention is around this region, right? I've mentioned in my introduction that this region is a huge region. Depending on how you look at it, it's between 400 to 600 million, but it's very fragmented. So every startup that's launching in the region, and I guess Iyad can speak to this, has uh, has to go and let's say, acquire their customers a million at a time or 10 million at a time. We really need to get uh, to get to a point where we open this region up and allow startups to get access to 400 million customers. And this is where we can create the multi-billion dollar opportunities in the region and where we can actually create players who can compete at a global scale. Because for now, it's still the scaling uh, issue is still quite uh, problematic. And uh, the, the last point, which I think we'll cover later probably, is uh, the challenge that has to do, these startups require funding, they require the people, they require the customers to scale, and they need the right partnerships. So in, in addition to finding the right funding, they need to find the right partners to work with them. And this is where the private sector could play a major role, but I guess we'll cover this at a later stage. I think perhaps one other angle to consider in um, the potential to scale up uh, for startups in the region is the type of uh, startups that we see in the region, no matter how successful they they are. And I understand and I agree if uh, there was more liquidity in early stage and and mid-stage funding, there would be more opportunities for startups to grow. And if there was a deeper pool of talent, certainly that that would help. But what we also see in the region is that we have a lot of me-too startups. I mean, great companies that have delivered great returns, but 
you hear it all the time. You know, this is the Uber of the Middle East, or this is the Amazon of the GCC, or it's the um, the Netflix uh, of, of this region. And I think in, in that case, when uh, when you are looking at clone models, it is difficult to raise significant amounts of money compared to the original global peers around which these players would move. And it also creates a natural sort of exit path for many of these companies. I think one of the biggest potentials for this region is to have startups from the region that tackle some of the very unique uh, problems that the region faces. Uh, if you think about youth unemployment, if you think about the potential for banking the underbanked and fintech and financial services, these are problems that are very difficult to crack. And these are problems that are ripe for disruption using technology, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit, and now the emergence of a, a entrepreneurial ecosystem that funds some of these some of these startups. And one of the big challenges for startups to be able to crack some of the larger and more endemic problems or opportunities for the region is around regulation, which is something that is is rarely talked about. I mean, you have. Uh, you have tax regimes that uh, sort of uh, are more geared towards prepaying your taxes. Uh, you have regulatory regimes that create a very fragmented regional landscape that requires you to obtain a license, not just in in every sort of market, but potentially in every in in every city. You have uh, central bank regulations that tightly regulate what can and cannot be done in the in the fintech space. And I think if the region is serious about really enabling startups to tackle some of of the more fundamental opportunities here in the region. And we have some great examples that are now sort of emerging. You have Swivel in Egypt that is tackling you know, public transport in one of the most congested cities of the region, an opportunity of 20 million people in, in, in one city. And if that's not enough scale, I don't know what, what scale looks like. Or Visita, again, in Egypt, which is tackling sort of the whole ecosystem around sort of reliably booking and providing sort of medical service. So there are plenty of examples. I think if the region then supports that type of startup, these are the startups that have the potential to become billion, $2 billion, $10 billion companies that then are able to export their model to other emerging markets around the world. That's a great point, Ahmed. And going back to the point that you raised on ecosystems, it's clear that the level of challenges that startups are facing requires a concerted effort from a number of different stakeholders to build the ecosystems that will be conducive to the development of this uh, of this space. So, Ahmed, if I were to ask you, what do you see as the role of the different stakeholders, such as government and private sector, in actually building this environment that will push startups to achieve their full potential? I think governments really need to take a very fresh approach to... Um, to many sort of uh, elements of the ecosystem. I think one, in terms of regulation, we need to start regulating for the future rather than regulating for the past. And that applies to banking, it applies to uh, healthcare, it applies to cross-border transaction, cross-border of uh, movement of people and, 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 and goods. I think certainly the private sector here has uh, gone through an education and maturity phase. There is certainly still bias towards physical assets. Intellectual property, human capital assets have historically not been able to command fair valuation or the premium you would expect them to get. And even in the case of Kareem, uh, which is you know, the first unicorn out of the region, Kareem does as many rides a year as Lyft in the US, and yet there is a delta of seven times in their, in their, in their valuation. So certainly there is a regional discount, and that regional discount can be rooted in issues around regulation, 
lack of funding, the talent pool, and the path to exit. I think, you know, obviously regulation varies by, by sector. I think in, in some of the sectors where we see big opportunity for growth for startups, there, there is almost crippling regulation. I mean, if you take an area where we're very active around uh, content development, uh, the censorship regime across many of the countries where we operate uh, stifles innovation and stifles creativity in content creation. And, and as a result, there is a dire lack of high-quality entertainment content in the region. I mean, still most of the media that is consumed around the Arab world by Arabs is in foreign foreign language. I think the other sector, uh, and perhaps I'm less familiar with the ride-hailing sector and taxi regulations, et cetera, but the other sector where we see also regulation that is quite um, unusual, uh, although the opportunity is quite apparent for the region, is around payments and banking, where the licensing regimes and the central bank regulations have not really allowed that sector to fulfill its its potential. Uh, having said that, I agree with you that probably the fragmentation and the ability to move people, information, goods, etc., across borders, especially given the relative size of the markets here, is something that needs to be tackled. The challenge with that is how to tackle it. Because obviously it, it requires multilateral cooperation, it requires governments coming together. And that's perhaps an area where an institution like Majid Fultaim that operates across markets can help in terms of enabling some of the participants in our ecosystem to operate. And I think there is a very good case study about where we helped uh, one of our investee companies get into the Saudi market that would, uh, would otherwise been crippling regulation-wise because they actually had to give the, the business to a competitor to be able to carry it across the border from the UAE to, to, to Saudi Arabia. And I think it's very apparent that if you tackle all of these one bit at a time, perhaps Karim shouldn't have been valued at $3.5 billion. It should have been valued at perhaps $24 billion. Iyad, from your perspective as an entrepreneur, what has been your experience working with corporates throughout your journey? We work across the world with many uh, big corporations. So we have uh, big telcos as investors. We have here in the region, we're working with Majid Full Time uh, on many projects. I think, um, I think it has uh, some uh, upsides and some downsides, but I think the most important point is a buy-in from the top. So in all our collaborations, we had successful ones across the world and, and, um, and, and partnerships where basically it was only about the money, right? Um, I think the successful ones are very clearly the ones where the CEO, the owner, the chairman was convinced of the partnership. Why is that? If you have a huge corporation, you have thousands and tens of thousands of employees, nobody really has an incentive to make the partnership work because it's not part of their KPIs. It's not part of their, you know, like they have so much other stuff to do. Why? And, and now a startup comes in, so they think, oh, that's just like more hassle for me. This changes if the CEO um, or the top leadership is convinced because then everybody has an incentive to make it work. That's what we see with Magical Full Time. We had a lot of partnerships where we had um, really the directive from the above uh, to work. We have this with some telcos in the region where the CEO himself was pushing, was asking what is going on, etc. I think that's the only way how, how this kind of corporations work because otherwise it will simply just be about the money. And that's simply not enough because financial investors are better probably investing into um, into entrepreneurships and than big corporations that said 
I think there's a huge benefit people don't talk. So I think customer base and sharing customer base is very important for startups because they're very small yet and they get access to that. But I think what is also very important is kind of experience with uh, soft skills that you are, I mean, you have all these young people, very aggressive, they build their companies, they understand somehow their customer base. But then um, when you grow, you need also other skills, right? And um, I think pairing up with a kind of mentorship um, that has helped me, that hel has helped our companies a lot um, to build to build this kind of companies, to learn. We had now, to give you an example, we had a very big PR case. Yeah? And I think um, tens of thousands of uh, tweets going around and uh, on one of our companies. And I think what we learned is from our corporate partner there, they had a much better kind of experience on how to handle it um, than a small startups that just launched and, 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 and did it. So I think this kind of soft skills that you learn with time, the, the um, a kind of organi organizing your growth are all very important. When we started, one of our companies grew from zero to 2,500 employees in the last three years. That's a huge thing to do and to handle. Um, and learning from established institutions is, I think, very important. So these kind of soft skills people don't see. They only see the kind of like the money and, you know, like the customers and so on. But there's so much more to it where you can learn, but then you need like the buy-in from the top. I want to add to this point, especially on the learning side. So when you look at these partnerships between the large private sector companies and the startups, you have to look at them beyond just the funding and the commercial aspects of things. The learning thing is something that's really underestimated and people don't see it because sometimes it could be really painful. Uh, working with large organizations could be stifling for startups, and I get it. But if you really look beyond this and you go through the pain of making these relationships work, you'll see a lot of benefits on the long term, even for the private sector. I think Iyad mentioned the benefits to the startup itself. I'll give you a very specific example of something that happened with us. We worked with Rocket Internet on a grocery investment and partnership, right? And the objective of it is uh, to have our uh, grocery business online through our own digital transformation and through partners. And we did that uh, partnership. Uh, with Rocket. When we started working with them, they, they they also have to do things that we're doing for our own. So we're doing uh, picking and packing and fulfillment on our own and they're doing it. By working with them, we've managed to actually learn on how to optimize our fulfillment capabilities and improve it by 20 to 30 percent, which really had a huge benefit on our core business. And that's not something we could have done if we really looked at it as just a commercial partnership where we're providing them products and they're selling them by themselves. If you really try to look at it as uh, as bringing two types of different organization, one that's structured, that's uh, more uh, disciplined, and another one that's more agile, and to try to marry the, the best of both worlds, you can get really amazing results. And and I mean, just to add on this point, I think people always say, oh, corporates can't do the startup thing because they are slow and big and so on. And the reason for, there is a real reason why, like uh, corporates are big and slow because they have a cash machine already. They build something that works very well. So the downside of making a mistake is much bigger than for a startup to make a mistake. So you need much more controls. You have something that has been working for the last 30 years. You have much bigger risk to change anything in that than if you're a startup trying something new. So all this kind of control. So people always tell me, ah, but if like a big corporate could change the bureaucracy and could be fast as they could be like a startup. I don't think that's uh, possible because you have, you need this kind of controls. You have something very successful. You have, and it's very, very hard 
um, to see, okay, what will happen next? So you have to experiment a lot and you have to take big risks. And um, so this marriage, I think, is, is a very good thing because a startup can mess up. Yeah, They can do something bad. The PR is bad. It didn't work. So they try the next thing. Um, so this kind of risk appetite um, you can't have in a big corporation. So you always, once you are bigger, one of our companies is now almost a billion dollar in revenue a company grew in the last three, four years, and we see it today. So now we're not longer a startup. Only we, so we are only three, four years old. Now we are basically very careful about who we hire, what we communicate. People are not allowed, core people are not allowed to go on social media, do their own stuff. Uh, when we launch a new product, we launch it under a different name. And we feel it right now, we don't get the same talent, right? We don't get this hungry, young, 21 year old um, guy or girl who wants like to build something amazing um, in there. So, so I think this one has simply to acknowledge that there are different kind of companies and, and one shouldn't try to merge them in with each other. I think they have to partner with each other and I think they have to find a way uh, to make this work. On the point of partnership between corporates and, and startups, uh, there is also the, um, the non-digital startups of the world. I think th this region doesn't just have a great potential for digital and software-driven startups, but, but actually when you look at um, the entrepreneurial scene across the region, there are many sort of startups that are extremely successful that bring innovative business models and innovative approach to very traditional traditional sectors. And we've seen that at Measure for Tame through our partnership with Endeavor. Uh, Endeavor is obviously a global organization that supports high-impact entrepreneurs. And many of the high-impact entrepreneurs here in the region, you of course have the likes of Property Finder, Amman's World, and Karim, but you also have organic food companies, you have people who work in traditional sectors. And Measure for Tame, we've had, I would say, a long tradition of partnering with startups. Uh, I think perhaps we are at a steep learning curve to engage positively with uh, digital startups. Uh, but 20 years ago, uh, Measure for Tame uh, malls, for instance, provided a platform for what is now many of the uh, established retailers, FMB operators, et cetera. They were startups back then, and through the partnership with Measure for Tame, they were able to scale up. And even today, we see that happening in the supply chain of our Carrefour business and some of our real estate developments and communities like the Moj. We have hundreds of startups where we provide a platform and an, an opportunity for these startups to come into our ecosystem and benefit and grow. And even as recent as our uh, entry into content production in partnership with NBC and, and Image Nation. This is about creating a platform uh, for a different type of startup, for the creative filmmakers and storytellers from the region to finally have a platform funding opportunity and distribution to be able to tell their story to the world. And I think it's interesting because the, the opportunity for collaboration between corporates and startups really is limitless. And it's great to see that it's not just that the startups can learn from the corporates, but it's really a two-way learning street. And uh, Joe, from your perspective, given your experience at Mejdal Futim, if you could shed a bit more light on how Mejdal Futim has supported entrepreneurship in the region, but also how Mejdal Futim has learned from working with startups. Entrepreneurship is at the core of the vision and values of Majid Futaim. We are an entrepreneurial organization. This is how we've been built. And Ahmad mentioned uh, what we've done in terms of pioneering, building the shopping malls in the region, bringing uh, modern grocery to the region, uh, bringing entertainment concepts like Ski Dubai, 
uh, innovating with Vox. All of these are entrepreneurial concepts, I think. And, and we've done this quite well, and we've worked with others uh, to actually bring this uh, to life. I think what we've started doing recently from, a, uh, let's say, that's a bit different than before, is that we got to a point where entrepreneurship and incubation of businesses is not something that we do by our own. I think, uh, and this is something that's evident even globally, no one player can build everything by their own. And that's why it's so important for you to build the capabilities and to scale is to actually bring a set of partners through a, let's say, cohesive uh, ecosystem together. And that's why we started, let's say, working very closely with um, startups on the digital side and non-digital side. Because these startups, first we help them to scale and move from being startups to scale-ups. That's one. And we've mentioned a couple of examples already on this. But also these startups or scale can help us bring in capabilities to our group and our transformation that would have taken us much longer to develop in-house or get through the much larger, well-established enterprises. So if we want any specific capability on uh, on digital or on other aspects of this transformation, let's take an example of last mile, right? We're doing our digital transformation. We know that last mile is a key component of our customer experience, giving it's our last touch point with the customer. It didn't make sense for us to build it by our own. Uh, a couple of years ago. So what we've done on that front, we went and invested and partnered with a company and we gave them access to our ecosystem to actually scale and, uh, and, and return to benefit us. And that's one example of how we're doing this. We're doing the same with Rocket Internet on multiple fronts. And now we're in discussion to also do a similar uh, type of a tie-up across the region where we incubate businesses ones that we create together or ones that are being created by other entrepreneurs that we can bring into that ecosystem. Uh, so um, I, I guess uh, the point there is we, we are at a point where we know that we're not in a position to do things by ourselves anymore. And what's important is to scale and to provide the right customer experience. And anything that's needed to deliver on these two, uh, we're open to doing it and we've been doing it. Thank you, Joe. So we've covered the state of entrepreneurship. We've looked at the challenges, opportunities, and the enablers for growth. I'm sure many of our listeners will be interested in hearing your advice on starting up a business. And perhaps, Ied, we can start with you and get your views on this. Yes. So uh, my number one advice to the young people out there, don't become doctors. I think that's the most harmful thing that is happening in the Middle East. So uh, we have, so in my family, it was, uh, you should become a doctor if you're like, um, if you have top grades and so on. I think that's a very Arab kind of thing. Um, or an engineer. I became an engineer, but uh, yeah, my mom said I have better chances on the marriage market as a doctor. So... And I, I subscribed to medicine. And I, I, I mean, it's funny, but it's, I think, a real problem. So we see um, people going into engineering and into doctorships, the smartest people, because you need good grades. Um, and it's kind of a secure income. And, um, and that's not how you enable the kind of entrepreneurship society that you really need. Why? Because like medicine um, uh, is, takes a lot of time. To finish, only the best go into it. So you get basically the smartest people out of the market to build great companies. And you have the smartest people having too much invested into something that will have very little impact on the society. Um, so um, maybe I'm not making a lot of fans with doctors out there, but I think that's 
um, extremely important from a kind of educational view to give the right role models to show people like what the Modeste from Kareem did, uh, what the Ronaldo from uh, uh, from Souk did. This is what uh, is really needed. I mean, how amazing is this? You can be like in your early 30s and build a company from scratch that is affecting the lives of millions of millions of people. You know, like this is just crazy. You couldn't do it in the past. You can be a 20 something year old and you can affect the daily lives. We have a right heading app. Um, which is um, basically having hundreds of thousands of drivers that are making their livings from it. So, um, but I mean, that's like an amazing impact um, that you can get um, as an entrepreneur. And, um, and again, it's a lot of work. It means like you have to sacrifice. Um, yeah, if you're like working in a big corporation, so it's also a lot of work and so on. It's a different kind of responsibility because you are responsible for the people you are hiring. You're responsible um, every night when you go to bed. At the other side, you have this huge kind of feedback that you're employing people, that you're delivering a service, that you're changing really something in the region. And that's just um, um, a fundamental um, feeling different than working uh, in a corporation. And one more thing, I think um, every entrepreneur should know it's, um, it's satisfying, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of um, not winning most of the time, and uh, you need a lot of endurance to do it. Um, but I think uh, it is worthwhile. I think it is also something very different if you look into the history of of mankind. When did you have the chance to access millions of people with your small laptop sitting in your family's like small children room and uh, accessing millions of customers? When could you have done this in the past? Never. This is something new, right? And that's amazing. Um, I think just grabs this chance. It's so, yeah. Um, and everybody always saying Middle East, you only see this bad news and so on. You can't do anything because politics is so complicated. Yeah, but you can build a company doing, uh, serving millions of drivers every day. Yeah, you can do it with 20 something. And I think that's a, that's an incredible chance. And uh, so don't become doctors. Thank you, Ayad. That's very inspiring. So Ahmed, from your perspective, what advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs listening to us today? I think I'm, I'm, I'm usually very reluctant to give advice. Uh, but I think the, the one thing that I can share is um, that entrepreneurship can, can come at any sort of point in your career. Uh, you can find that spark, you can find that idea or that passion at any point in time. A uh, case in point is, is obviously Measure, measure for Time. We are a 25-year-old uh, startup. Um, and I think when, when you look at uh, certainly the, the, the average age of founders uh, across digital, non-digital startups, there is a huge spectrum. There are people who started very successful companies in their teens, and there are people who started equally successful companies in their 50s um, or sometimes uh, 60s. So I think it's it's never too late. And if you find the right idea, you're passionate about it, absolutely uh, go for it. And I think my my biggest sort of uh, inspiration in that regard is... Um, uh, Mr. Sam, who started, you know, Walmart. I mean, he did that. I think it was his mid 40s, and today Walmart employs directly half a million people, and through its supply chains, tens and hundreds of millions of millions of people. So, uh, so I would say it's never, 
never too late. And if your mother tells you to become a doctor, do listen to her. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and if you ask me, I would say listen to Iyad but, and, and Ahmed. But the point is that I, I actually, I'm not going to be presumptuous and claim that I actually can give advices to entrepreneurs given that I haven't done it myself. But what I can give is an investor and a private sector uh, perspective into this. And I've... And I'm always humbled when I'm sitting with entrepreneurs who are coming to Majid Futaim to either ask for an investment or a partnership because I'm really always impressed by the level of sacrifice and the level of commitment they have to actually showcase to be able to really keep pushing through to make these startups a success. So if I, if I had a couple of pieces of advice that I can give them, first I would tell them to, um, to, uh, to fail fast if they had to fail and adapt. Don't get stuck on one idea or one uh, concept or one business model. Uh, be be flexible and adapt quickly if you have to. Uh, I would tell them to build a strong team from the get-go, right? I think having the right team around you is critical. And uh, to try to build, uh, in addition to the right team, uh, try to build a, a winning proposition. Try to solve a problem. If you're solving a real problem, you're going to get it right. There is no, you're going to hustle, you're going to find your way, but you're going to get it right. Think of people's problems and try to solve one. And I think that is something that investors see uh, very quickly. If you're solving a real problem, you have the right team, you'll get the support you need to make it a success. I think the younger you are, the more chances you have. Not because you're smarter or anything, simply because you're crazier to take risks, right? Like if you have a family, you have your family car, your villa, you have your five kids, um, it's much more risk simply um, than you're like a magical full time, right? So then you're big already and you have everything and, and then it's much harder to give up and take risk in, uh, in it. So I think the younger you are, the kind of crazier you are, the kind of more risks you take. I'll give you an example. When I was called, I was already old, 26 or something. I was assistant professor in Germany. Um, the, the investor called me, told me, forget about it. I had a call to go teach in one of the top universities globally. And he said, ah, forget it. Yeah, just go and open a startup. And I was young and I was foolish. And I said, yes. Um, in retrospect, it was a stupid decision, right? Like I had uh, built my whole career in science and so on. And um, then it was a stupid decision. I took it, but now it's a good decision. Um, uh, but it was kind of craziness uh, to take it. If I would have already everything, um, my nice Porsche, um, etc., I wouldn't have done it. Uh, yeah. So if we go back to a point that we mentioned earlier, when we look at the end game for startups, and this has been a discussion on the table since the recent acquisitions of uh, Karim and Souk, these are two success stories in the region that have both exited to global companies. And this has sparked a debate on what does success look like and what's the end game for startups. So if I start with you, Ahmed, what's your perspective on this? I know that it's a very subjective topic, but it would be great to get your ideas on what is the end game? Listen, I think it's a very personal question because usually it's, it's the end game for the founder rather than the end game for the startup. I think different founders are motivated by different things, regardless of their age and their academic sort of achievement. Uh, so there are founders who are driven by um, financial success. And there are others who are driven by recognition. And many, if not most, are driven by solving you know, fundamental uh, problems or creating fundamental value. Uh, so I think that's, that's a question that's a very personal question for, for founders. I think at the macro level, the, the end, I wouldn't call it the end game, uh, but I would call it the, um, perhaps the aspiration is for startups in this part of the world really to play a very important and I would say potent role 
in, in making this region fulfill its potential. Uh, this is a region where uh, there are challenges that you can look at them and say, wow, that's very daunting, but there are equally big opportunities in terms of youth employment, in terms of economic growth, in terms of youth empowerment, multiple sorts of avenues. And I think the, the aspiration is for startups uh, digital and non-digital aside, started by young people and old people, doctors and high school graduates alike, to create significant value to allow this region to thrive. What's your perspective, Joe, on the aspiration for startups? It could be financial returns, which definitely is something that Iyad is very uh, uh, motivated by. But it could also be something else, because you've been talking about funding uh, the whole podcast. <laughs> But I think it could, it could also be a mix, right? At the end of the day, it's about value creation. And value creation could be financial, could be about people's uh, lives, it could be about economic uh, uh, benefits to the society, could be about job creation, right? But if you look at it from a macro perspective, I think the the, the simple indication of uh, to assess if the, the, let's say, the startup ecosystem is playing its role or not is by looking at uh, improvement on people's lives. Is, is it improving people's lives overall? And you have so many indices that you can look, look at to test this. If it's a yes, then there is an improvement and it's playing its role. I think that's the ultimate goal of anything we're doing. If it's a startup, it's a scale-up, it's a large organization, we should be thinking of a more broader type of value creation that has to do with the society we're in and how we're improving people's lives. And, and, and everything else would fall indirectly from that, be it financial uh, returns or anything else that you would be aspiring for and buying your Porsche. So, Ed, as a founder, what's your take on this? I think what is missing in the region is uh, are IPOs because um, obviously everybody is also looking for financial benefit of it, right? And um, it's easy to tell all the Souks and Kareem, like, why did you sell off to uh, a big conglomerate and so on. Um, I mean, it's a lot of sacrifice and so on. There, there will be always a financial uh, motivation. And I think best to keep it somehow in the region, to keep these assets in the region and at the same time give some kind of incentive is IPOs because then all the people who work in the companies, they can they have liquidity um, in terms of stocks and stock options and so on. Um, at the same time, local investors can own different shares um, in this company. So I think this culture is still missing. It's a New York Stock Exchange and that makes a lot of impact on the founders. It shows them I work not only the founders, but also like uh, people who are working very early on the company that they can um, that they can benefit from it also um, financially. So that said, um, that's not the motivation. If this is a pure motivation financial, then you shouldn't do it because you will have, if our my guys that I work with went to financial, to like investment banking, they would all now, not only Porsches, but yachts and so on, have them and so on. And they're like qualified, etc. So I think you have to have this intrinsic um, even egoistic, yeah, I wouldn't call it like so, you know, like helping society and so on. You want to see the impact that you can create and that's an amazing feeling, right? Like you go home and um, um, and you, you, you really like a small decision, um, to give you an example, a small decision and right hating algorithm, you improve it by 2% um, the fulfillment rate. That means like your drivers will make 2% more. That's millions and millions um, of dollars that you can generate for the drivers. So this kind of very egoistic or like selfish reason um, makes it makes it so amazing that you, you have so much influence um, to change things. So just I want to talk about one practical uh, point that Yad mentioned is... Uh 
is the access to capital markets, right? And that's a challenge we didn't really tackle in our discussion so far. And I think this is something that could be a game changer for the region if startups are given access to the capital market. And maybe I, I'm going to actually throw this back to Iyad, given that they've done a lot of uh, investments in the region and they've really scaled uh, startups to a point where they got them to a sizable scale and then they actually exited or, or sold them. And so I'm sure they've tried to test the idea of an IPO exit, right? And given that the governments in the region, especially in the UAE, has been quite supportive of startups. And we've seen the support that they gave to Karim and Uber when these exits happened. So I'm sure if people are actually going to them and discussing this, there is room to actually open up the capital markets for startups. So yeah, I'm sure you had experience on this front. If there's something you can share with the with the listeners on this or give us a perspective. Yes, I, I think I think because it's new, um, institutionalized investors who are at the capital market are kind of more hesitant to look at the same kind of valuation. So if you, you come in with a traditional retail business, you, you have kind of like profits and you, you see um, the valuations are much more conservative than startups. And the reason for that is because startups grow much faster um, and and they're monopolizing much more than let's say traditional businesses. So the valuations um, are based on different kind of factors than what you see in traditional uh, um, markets. So in the past, um, you were finding less interest from the capital markets, but I think that is changing now simply because you see that you can make big exits and that you can be profitable over time. Um, a good example is Amazon was on the capital markets for a long time, making a lot of losses, and now they are turning massively profitable um, in the last uh, in the last couple of years. So I think this will happen. Um, I have no doubt this will happen here in the region, but I think um, it will take a bit more time. If we move the conversation to a bit of a personal angle, Iyad, if you look at your personal journey and you had to do it all over again, would you change anything? I definitely would have again went into this area. Um, and uh, so for me, it was like either becoming an academic and professorship and all this stuff or doing entrepreneurship. So definitely entrepreneurship was so much more exciting. It is like we lived together with my co-founder. We lived uh, 10 lives in 10 years. Um, every day you have a catastrophe, every day you have a new challenge. Um, it is a crazy life. And one smart guy once told me, your life quality at the end of your life is the density of your memory. So how many interesting memories do you have, good and bad? And I think you build so much memory, so much density um, in what you have uh, done in, the, in, in this time. That's the upside. Um, so I don't regret it. On the downside, it is on your personal life taking a big toll. Yeah, it's much harder to have a family. It's much harder to um, um, to build something outside work um, than if you're a doctor. Um, but again, I think for me it was worth it. But you need to know this before you go very hard into it. And finally, what are your plans for the future? I think the future is super bright. Um, this, uh, I think, um, entrepreneurship and new companies are just at the very beginning in the region. Um, I think we will see massive companies coming. Um, Su, Kareem, uh, our Hangas uh, station, Talabat, etc. is just the very beginning. I think this will be the region where we will see giant companies coming um, out. And I think, um, as you said, Ahmed, it will be also more innovative companies coming from here, solving more problems that are very specific to the region or specific to emerging markets in general. So I think it's an ex extremely exciting times. Um, we see all this bad news here. 
in the news every day, like when you open the TV and so on. I think um, we will see a lot of good news from entrepreneurship. I think that is should be the drivers for a lot of young people to go into it. And I think it's the most exciting thing that you can be doing right now. Great. Well, that's all for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Ahmed, Joe, and Iyad for a very interesting discussion and some great insights. A big thank you to all of you for listening and see you next time. That was Rocket Internet Middle East CEO Iyad al Qasar, Acting Chief Corporate Development Officer at Majid al Holdings, Joe Abi Akel, and Chief Executive Officer at Majid al Properties, Ahmed Galal Ismail, talking with host Yasmin El Thank you all for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode.